everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here at Discovery. Thank you, Todd Vickers. Um, I am excited to be here, excited to talk through this. Uh, We are going into the 12th week of our series, Acts, A People After God. Uh, And so if you are following along, we're in the 12th week, which means we will be in chapter 12. Uh, Acts is an incredible book talking about God's people, God's church. Uh, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died, he rose from the dead, Uh, And then he sent his people to build this church. Uh, And so that's what we're diving into today. Uh, And if you've been following along, it continues to get more and more tumultuous for the people in Acts. And today, we'll see that even more. Uh, So before we jump in too much further, I would love to open us in prayer before we dive in. Uh, Hey, God, it's Jake. I just want to thank you for today. Uh, Thank you for an opportunity to dive into the book of Acts. Uh, God, I pray today that we would start to uh, recognize the tension that can come when we open a Bible, uh, recognize the tension in our lives, um, and begin to ask you what we do with that. God, thank you. Amen. So in the book of Acts, uh, we have this group of Christians, and it starts to bounce back and forth between a few groups. Uh, One group is in Jerusalem, and they're kind of holding down the fort. This is where it all started. The other group is off sharing the gospel in all of these major areas. We'll talk a little more about that. Um, For me, when I read the book of Acts, compared to any other book in the Bible, uh, it starts to feel pretty different for me. Uh, Because the Bible up to this point, starting at the very beginning, included creation, God's plans and covenants, the life, love, good decisions, bad decisions, and overall state of the people of Israel throughout history. Uh, And for me, at least, when I read that, I'm so intrigued and fascinated. Uh, I love seeing where the Bible connects with history and seeing all of these connections. And for me, and I think for a lot of people, uh, much of the Old Testament is pretty foundational for our faith journey. Uh, What do we know about God? What do we think about God? What does God declare about himself Um, But oftentimes when I read the Old Testament, um, I can find myself looking at it pretty analytically. Uh, I'm looking at another group of people. Then we get to the New Testament, and we get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we meet this person named Jesus. Again, it's fascinating. We find out about this God that loves us, this personal God, this revolutionary idea that God sent his son down to move into the neighborhood Uh, to spend time with us, to connect with us, to do life one-on-one. And the concept is revolutionary. Uh, It's the reason that anytime someone is new to church or new to faith, um, we direct them toward the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because they have a chance to encounter this life-changing person of Jesus, um, who for many of us has completely altered the course of our lives. And if you're here today, Um, and you don't know that story, um, just know that the entire Bible, if you wanted to sum it up very, very briefly, goes like this. God created us to be with him. 
Um, but we have this sin that separates us from God. That sin are the, the things that we do that yeah, you do in the dark. Uh, the things that you know you shouldn't. The things that um, aren't good. And so God sent his son Jesus uh, to do life with us, to die for us, and to show us a way to him. Um, and if you're here today and you don't know that story, what you're going to experience today is a group of people who were unleashed by Jesus. Uh, Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he had this small little group of people, and he said, now go and build my church. Um, and in Acts, we get to see that. When we get to Acts, and then the epistles after this, uh, when I read the Bible, it starts to change for me. Uh, because when I look at Acts, and then the following books where Paul is speaking to churches like Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, um, I find myself noticing some things because suddenly I can picture some of what's happening like it's real for me. Uh, because he's talking to churches. Uh, he's talking to church bodies. He's talking to groups of Christians, groups of believers, groups of non-believers, um, in some ways, when I look at these churches, I think of Discovery Church 2,000 years ago. What would that look like? So today, as we're reading Acts 12, and as we're looking at what this church is going through, I would love for you to contextualize and say, what would that look like today? Because I think any time you open the Bible, if you choose to dive in deep enough it's going to draw up tension. How does this translate to modern times? What do I do with what I read? Uh, and what do I do when what I'm reading doesn't line up with my day-to-day -day faith? If I follow God, if I listen to God, if I do what I can, but what I'm reading is not what I normally experience, what do I do with that? This tension is found all throughout the pages of Scripture, but today, in Acts 12, I want to point out three tensions that I feel as I read this chapter. Um, and if we ignore these, I think it diminishes the text. Uh, these three tensions are ones that these people would have felt deeply. Um, and that 2,000 years ago, um, I start to feel, if I can be honest, a little bit of a discomfort as I read this passage. Here are the three tensions to hold in mind. First, the idea that God is in control. Let's talk about that really briefly. Um, I don't mean on a macro overall level. That's easy for me. Uh, God is in control. Uh, he oversees the universe. He created everything. We have this all-powerful, all-knowing being who is in control. I can get there pretty easily, and I think the people in Acts could as well. What does it mean if God is in control um, for my tomorrow uh, and for my today? What does God being in control mean on a micro level for my life? What does God being in control mean on a micro level for the people of Acts? That's the first tension we're going to experience. Uh, the second, especially in modern day America, in a pretty intellectual part of the country, a country that we value comfort, we value knowing, we value knowledge, Second, the idea of the movement of the Holy Spirit, the effect it has on our world. Uh, ideas like discernment, miracles, the power of prayer, angels, demons, what is happening behind the curtains. In other words, when we talk about an all-powerful, 
all-loving, all-holy God who seems to kind of break the natural order at times, what do you and I do with that? Because oftentimes when I read Acts, in fact, when I read any of the Bible, there's a lot going on there that I haven't experienced, and I've got to figure out what to do with that. Third, the third tension for us today is how do we read Scripture? Um, And it's often tied back to that second tension. Is it literal? Is it metaphorical? Is it an allegory? Or how does it apply today? Uh, And not as in how does every verse apply to me today, but what do I do with this passage, especially as I'm about to read some things um, that I've never experienced and I don't think many of you have either? So three tensions to hold in place. God is in control, the movement of the Holy Spirit and God's effect on the world, and how do we read Scripture? We're going to hold on to those three, and we're going to read through the book of Acts, chapter 12, and we're going to read through most of the book, or the chapter. It's not overly long, and in my mind, I've split it into three distinct sections, and we'll address these tensions as they come. So if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Acts 12, 1 through 5. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Here we go. Acts 12, 1 through 5. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard over him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. There's a lot to unpack in those few verses. Um, First and foremost... Uh, I want to start with a potential confusion of names in the Bible. If we're not careful, we can get really confused or skip over some important things because uh, we just introduced a character named Herod. Um, has anyone heard of a person named Herod in the Bible? Anyone ever heard the name Herod? Um, you should have because he's all over the New Testament. Uh, you may have heard about uh, the Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby at the beginning of the Gospels. Uh, we have this King Herod who hears that Jesus the Messiah is coming, and so he orders the death of all children under the age of two. Um, That is not this Herod. Um, That is this Herod's grandfather. Uh, Because in fact, there are a total of about six Herods that we see in Scripture, and I'm going to give a quick explanation of them, but if you want to dive in deeper, uh, there's that QR code on the front of your chair. You can access it with your camera on your phone. The very top link is something called, like, who are all these Herods? Um, And it's a link to a blog post by Kenneth Birding from Biola University that's a pretty fascinating and interesting read. Um, But really, basically, we have Herod the Great. Um, He was the first bad one. He's the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, uh, reigned for about 10 years. Uh, After he died, he had three sons. One of them, Herod Archelaus, uh, lasted for about 10 years and was eventually replaced. The second one... Herod Antipas, Uh, he's the one, if you know the Gospels, ended up killing John the Baptist, um, Jesus' cousin. Then we have Herod Philip, the Tetrarch. I don't know much about him other than the fact that he married his niece, which is not a great thing to be remembered for. Um, Then we have Herod Agrippa I. That's who we just met. Uh, This is the grandson of Herod the Great, 
um, and is just as angry and evil as his grandfather. Uh, Herod Agrippa I really dislikes Christians. In fact, all of the Herods really dislike Christians, as we'll talk about. Um, he lasts for a short amount of time, and spoiler for the end of this message, he, he dies in this passage. Uh, and finally, we have Herod Agrippa II. Uh, you're going to read about him in about Acts 24. This is another Herod who will meet Paul. Um, so, there's a little history lesson for you. Uh, the important reason that I share this is to know that uh, if you don't know that, it may feel like some of these people are living for like 90 or 100 years. So now you know that's not the case. Uh, the second is because that name Herod is important. Because Herod is a family dynasty. It's a political dynasty. And many of the decisions they made were for political reasons. Uh, they were political entities. Uh, they might not make the best decision for the people. They would make the best decision for them which is completely unconnected to politics in America today, but that is an aside. They held power and sway in Judea. They oversaw much of the reasons, or they oversaw much of the region, and they made decisions for these re political reasons. And there were many Jews that followed them. Uh, they call, we call them Herodians. Uh, these Herodians were generally hostile toward Jesus and his teaching, and so, in an attempt to keep and consolidate power, the Herods generally did well by their people by persecuting Jesus and his people. So when you see Herod, you know it's generally antagonistic. The other interesting piece here, especially of James' death, is the timing. Luke makes sure to tell us that this is by the festival of unleavened bread. So we know it's around Passover. We know we're in Jerusalem which means we know there's going to be a lot of people, and we see Herod making a political decision. He takes James, he kills him, and then sees that there are a bunch of Jewish people who are really happy about it. They, they love the spectacle. They love the show, the bloodshed. And so he decides to do it again with Peter. The next important thing here is to recognize the first tension that we're going to find in this passage. And that is the fact that God has a plan and is in control. Uh, because despite the fact that the early church has faced mountains of persecution, it continues to thrive, grow, and flourish. Um, that being said, in the last few chapters, we've seen an interesting split. The church had its first martyr in a man named Stephen. He was, he was killed for preaching the gospel. Just two chapters later, a man named Saul is converted and begins sharing the gospel. In this chapter, we have one of the original 12 disciples who walked directly with Jesus, who's killed, James, the brother of John. In fact, not only was he a core part of the early church, he was one of Jesus's close three. Uh, we hear from him all throughout the Gospels. We hear him give all kinds of things. He has many, if you will, lines in the Bible compared to someone like Bartholomew, who we never hear from. James dies in one verse. Uh, it'd be like watching your favorite TV show and a character's gone in like 40 seconds and we don't talk about them again. Uh, that's what just happened to James. It feels so sudden, so final. He's killed for political reasons and then seeing that the Jews were in favor of it, Peter is taken and eventually escapes. God is in control. We see his church thriving 
But along the way, some are martyred, some are killed, some are not, um, or at least not yet. Tension one. In our lives, how do you deal with the idea that God is in control? And here, in the suburbs, we tend to highly value safety, comfort, peace. It doesn't feel like those are always things that God has for his people. It doesn't feel like that's what James experienced. God always promises his presence, but he doesn't always promise safety. He doesn't always promise it'll work out well. So what do you do on a micro level with the idea that God is in control? All right, that's a thoroughly terrifying concept. So we're going to move on to the next section. Um, if you have a Bible, we'll keep going. Acts 12, 6 through 17, and we'll address the second tension. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane, when suddenly the angel left him. Now Peter came to himself and said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that... Instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she insisted it was so. They said, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. Okay, first I want to address what I think is an unintentionally hilarious part of this passage. Peter has just been physically pulled out of prison. He's on the run. He's seen God do a miracle. He gets to the place where his friends are. He knocks on the gate, and Rhoda, who answers the door, is so excited that she runs back to tell people and leaves Peter out in the cold. Uh, Peter, who is a wanted man, who is fleeing the Romans who is probably worried for his life, and it it even tells us he continues knocking, like, please let me in. And if it stopped there, it would be funny enough. But then when Rhoda tells people about it, their response is just really nonchalant. Like, oh, it's not Peter. Oh, it, it might just be his angel. Don't worry about it, it's just his angel. Like, if I'm in that situation, I'm either jumping for joy that Peter is back or freaking out that you just told me there might be an angel at my front door. But the people here felt like they seemed like it wasn't a very big deal. 
I spent some time looking into this because, let's be honest, this is a fascinating part. And I came across a lot of commentary on the idea of Peter's angel. Uh, For those of you who are interested, um, here's a little bit of rabbinical history. According to a few modern Jewish rabbis, such as Rabbi Leo Trepp, uh, a Jewish rabbi who survived the Holocaust and passed away in 2010, uh, along with a few rabbis in ancient times, uh, the idea of the guardian angel was pretty common around this time for most Jews. It was the idea that angels watched over cities, nations, and individuals. So this could have been a reference to that. Uh, This is reflected in the book of Daniel, where we see this war between angels and demons. Uh, Then there was the idea that angels could take on the appearance of individuals, or it could be a reference to the idea that people thought Peter may have been killed and was awaiting the resurrection, and so he came as a, a spirit or an angel to the people, similar to when Jesus' disciples thought they saw Elijah on the mountain who turned out to be Jesus. Uh, But regardless of which of those interpretations we take, there's one constant. To the people who were praying for Peter's return, the idea of angels, miracles, and resurrection felt, if not normal, then not completely unexpected. And that brings us to the second tension that I think most of us experience when we read the Bible. The idea of the movement of the Holy Spirit. The effect it has on our world. The movement of God. Discernment. Miraculous events. The power of prayer. Angels. Demons. In other words, as enlightened, intelligent people in the 21st century, how do we read this passage? And what do we pull out of it? As a quick aside... Many of you have probably heard over the years that the Bible is broken into different genres and should be read as such. For example, you wouldn't read a history textbook the same way you would read the works of Shel, Silverstein, or Shakespeare. The Bible should be treated the same way. There are books that are intentionally poetic, Song of Solomon, parts of Job, Psalms. Those are three easy examples. And when reading those books, you have to know there are times the author does not intend to be literal, but they intend to be metaphorical. They intend to be allegorical, um, unless this line, like we find in Song of Solomon 4.1, was meant to be literal. It goes like this. How beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves beyond your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. I'm assuming, because I don't know the culture, that eyes are doves and hair like a flock of goats was a compliment. Uh, But anyone reading that can tell that that is not a literal statement, right? That is a metaphor. The book of Acts, however, um, is mostly meant to be read literally. It's an account by Luke of the early church, which means when we read about Peter's chains being loosened and him being set free, it would be easy for us to say things like, hey, God loosens our chains and sets us free from sins, or God frees us from the prison of sin, both of which are true statements, um, but not what's happening in this passage. Luke wants us to know that God literally freed Peter from chains. In fact, if you'll notice, when he described James's death, it's one verse. James was killed by a sword. Pause hard stop. When he describes the captivity of Peter, he goes into detail. He wants us to know that Peter was bound between two guards, chained with two chains, with sentries guarding the entrance. 
He wants us to know from verse 4 that Peter was under guard by 16 different guards. Yet despite this, Peter was freed by an angel, his chains were released, and he walked out of prison. What do we do with that? Do we believe God works like that today? Do we believe that this right here was intended for those people at that time? It's not something we see today. That this was for the formation of the early church? I have a question I'm going to ask you, and we're going to take about 10 seconds to pause, and I want you to think on it. When you come to a place in the Bible or something from a sermon where something happens that doesn't seem to line up with how faith works in your life today, what do you do with that when you read or hear it? I'll ask it one more time. When you come to a place in the Bible or hear something in a sermon that seems extraordinary and doesn't seem to line up with what your faith looks like today, what do you do with that? Give me a few seconds just to think about that. When you come to that, do you skip it? Do you nod at it and smile and just let it go? Do you assume it's a metaphor or an allegory? Do you assume it's something that used to happen and doesn't? Um, Or do you take it and do you wrestle with it? And do you ask what that can look like today? Uh, I'll tell you of all of those, that last one is the hardest uh, because it's the only one of those choices that forces you to sit in discomfort. which isn't always a bad thing. All right, let's continue to layer this on a little bit more by finishing this chapter. We'll find ourselves in verse 19 and the question of what do we do with the movement of God and continue to expand there. Acts 12, 19. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they came to him in a body, and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for reconciliation, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to them. The people kept shouting, this is the voice of God, not of a mortal, and immediately because he had, not been given, he had not given glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. Then, after completing their mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem and brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Luke wants us to know that he's not giving a metaphor. God does not strike at the man. No, it says God struck him down and he's eaten by worms and he died. Luke wants us to know that God is active in control and that there are things happening behind the curtain that are so much more than we see. Because um, what would you do if you were sitting listening to somebody give a speech 
hear a ruler, a king, a president, a politician giving a speech, and they just suddenly fell dead. At this point, we finish Acts 12. We're not, ha- we're not quite halfway through the whole book yet, and we're already picking up steam. If we want to give a quick recap of the entire 12 chapters of Acts, they can really be recapped by that second-to-last verse in Acts 12. But the Word of God continued to advance. I've really come to believe that reading the Bible as a 21st century American is an exercise in recognizing tension. And if we can recognize and acknowledge these tensions, it gives us a much greater chance to move the Bible from an ancient text to a life-giving book that inundates our day-to-day lives. Uh, And the three tensions I listed that exist as we read Acts are really three tensions that exist as we engage the Bible in any capacity. If God is in control, what does it mean for me? What do I think about the movement of the Holy Spirit and God's effect on the world? How do I read the Bible? Quick warning. Um, I'm not answering any of those questions today. Um, We're actually just going to sit in tension because I think that that's what you have to do. Uh, I wish I had an answer for those, and I I can probably come up with a pithy answer, but I don't think that helps. As we dive deeper into the book of Acts and deeper into what God says for our lives in these coming months, um, I'm excited as we continue to see these tensions more and more and hopefully step into them uh, rather than just nod at them and brush them away. Uh, Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you uh, for an opportunity to talk about your word. Uh, And thank you for an opportunity to sit in tension. Uh, Thank you for an opportunity to see uh, things that spark thought and spark discussion Um, and thanks for not just having an answer Um, because I think that's the point God I pray as we go through the rest of this year as we go through the rest of the summer Lord that we just continue to find these tensions and ask ourselves what do we do with that as Christians as non-Christians as people checking out faith as people who have walked away from faith and are looking to come back What do we do with tension? Amen.